the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, but wait, he's so much more. Let me get a copy of the CD out here. We'll start reading you. <laughs> Some of the highlights. No, I, that's probably all there is to it, and half that's probably made up. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us today for this Thursday, 27th day of January. almost said February because February is just right around the corner, and it's hard to believe. We were just wishing each other Merry Christmas and Happy New Year feels like yesterday, and, and here we are, one-twelfth of the year is almost uh, behind us. Well, in any event, we've got a lot to talk about on today's program, so I want to get right down to uh, the cases and begin with an issue that's a delicate issue, to be sure, but an issue that ought to be on all of our radar screens because it has the potentiality of impacting all of us. And um, to put this in context for you, um, the issue of assisted suicide, so-called death with dignity. Um, I want to set the record straight here first, that this is not the last frontier of some antiquated medical approach or, you know, uh, outmoded morals. Uh, neither is assisted suicide compassionate nor kind. It's, I believe, the last stop on the slippery slope towards societal abandonment of what was, for the most of history, a regard for life as something sacred and precious to be protected at all costs, struggles, inconveniences, warts and all. Instead, growing numbers of so-called influencers are working to convince the rest of us that normalization of suicide is just, well, the compassionate thing to allow for anyone facing terminal illness. Derek Humphreys in the 1980s encouraged it. Jack Kevorkian perfected it, and now conservative George Will is endorsing it? Let's find out more. We're joined by Wesley Smith. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. He's been named by the National Journal as one of the nation's top expert thinkers in bioengineering for his work in the arena of bioethics. And Wes, as always, great to have you with us. Great. Good talk to you again. You know, this kind of set me back on my heels. Uh, you know, many of us have, have followed George Will's work and read his columns. I think at one time, many years ago, I even interviewed him. Um, he, he's been, you know, slowly kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, it sounds like, and no pun intended there. <laughs> I just realized what I said. But I guess in a real sense now he's encouraging all of us. Yeah, when it gets a little inconvenient, when, uh, you know, things in life go along your way and uh, you're just not so happy, then why not drink the Kool-Aid literally? 
Talk to me about what is influencing this man's change of opinion, and is it all part of this large march, as I kind of suggested in my opening remarks, toward abandoning what had been protected and sacred and just kind of treating it as um, inconvenient and easily disposable? Yeah. um, First, I wouldn't be surprised if you interviewed Will, because you had such a stellar career, you probably interviewed everybody, and uh, you're, you're going around for a second time. (laughs) Uh, But George Will, it's interesting, uh, is a conservative. I met him once, uh, and as you know, I've been working against euthanasia since, uh, gosh, 1993. It's a long time in itself. And I met him once in the late 90s, and he uh, knew who I was, which I was very, you know, flattered by, and he congratulated me on my work. In 2015... Uh, he wrote his first pro-assisted suicide piece. And that was a little bit after he kind of came forward and uh, came out of the closet as an atheist uh, and said he he was, um, you know, he he married, he said, I, I married a, a fierce Presbyterian and we raised our kids free, fierce Presbyterian, but I don't believe. And, uh, and once he kind of uh, disclosed his atheism, he started moving to the what we might call um, the social progressive side of some social issues, particularly assisted suicide. So in 2015, he wrote a small you know, one column basically saying he was for it. And he didn't do much about it after that. But then the, the other day, uh, uh, in the Washington Post, he came out with two columns in a row not only endorsing assisted suicide, but basically boosting it as a, uh, to normalize it as a means of ending one's life when one has a terminal illness. And the National Review then contacted me and said, would you write a rebuttal, which I did, uh, which is, um, which I wrote and it just got posted yesterday. It's called George Will Pushes the Hemlock. <laughs> but um, he got a lot of it wrong. And I think the biggest thing he got wrong is that, as I think you pointed out, assisted suicide is not about terminal illness. That's the entry point. That's the uh, argument to get people to accept the premise that killing is an acceptable answer to human suffering. Once you accept that premise, there's no uh, natural boundary, because who are you to say that someone's suffering isn't worthy of dying? Uh, uh, people with serious disabilities may suffer more than uh, somebody with a terminal illness. People with mental illnesses may actually suffer more than any other uh, type of person, and for a far longer period. And so if you're going to say that suffering justifies killing, then you can't limit it to people who are terminally ill. And in most other places that have legalized either assisted suicide or euthanasia, they don't. We still tend to hear in this country because the um, the population as a whole is not yet on board with the agenda. But if it ever gets to be on board with the agenda, we'll go the way of Canada, Belgium, Netherlands, and other countries. Well, and sadly, the, the terminology, the guidelines here become so pliable, so malleable, that in the end, all of the guardrails are taken off. And as you so aptly point out, uh, who's really to define what suffering is? I mean, is it is it physical pain? Is it emotional pain? Is it somebody that just feels that they can't live the kind of life that they'd like to? 
And so they should have the ability to therefore end it because it's less pleasurable than they want. Let's face it, as we all grow older, you know, I'd love to do, uh, you know, the, the mountains in Aspen, Colorado and go slaloming and head on down and enjoy a good day or two at, uh, you know, at the ski resort. But the older you get, the more difficult that becomes. So does somebody say, well, if you're an avid skier and you're deprived of the ability to physically do that as you grow older, that, well, you, we shouldn't let you suffer. Let's just allow you to end it. I mean, it's, I, I guess the the big part, and, and it, and it kind of goes to the heart of your column, uh, George Will pushes the hemlock, and that is that, well, once we head down this slippery slope, all bets are off. Yeah, and it's not a slippery slope anymore. It's, it's facts on the ground. I mean, it's now demonstrable what happens when you legalize these things. Um, back when I started, as I said, in 1993, I could you could project forward in you, using your logic, right? Uh, and my first piece in Newsweek magazine, which came out in June of 1993, is called The Whispers of Strangers. And I projected that if we legalized assisted suicide, eventually there would be organ harvesting thrown in as a plum to society. That was the terminology I used. I was called an alarmist. I was, you know, called hysterical. I got, <laughs> I got so much hate mail. And that's back, Craig, when you had to actually pay to tell somebody you hope they get cancer by putting a stamp on a letter. That's before email. Uh, and now, uh, in Canada, if you live in Ontario and you ask for euthanasia, the euthanasia people will contact the organ uh, donation organization, and they will contact the person to be killed and ask for organs. In Netherlands, uh, mentally ill people are euthanized who ask to be killed, and their organs are harvested. I saw one uh, article written up in a medical journal, an organ transplant medical journal, and it blew my mind because it went through uh, four patients who had been euthanized and then their lungs used for transplants. And, they, and the cheering was, oh, look, it worked, and, and the, the um, grass worked well. So I looked to see who the patients were. Three had neuromuscular disabilities, and one was mentally ill. Mm. I looked deeper into the mental illness. This was a self-harmer. So in the Netherlands, the, the, quote, treatment for self-harm was to be killed and then harvested for organs. It, it really does boggle the mind. And in Germany, the, the highest court of Germany, uh, which is called the Constitutional Court, but it's like our Supreme Court, has ruled that there is an absolute fundamental constitutional right to suicide, a constitutional right to be assisted in that suicide, and that the reason for your desire to kill yourself cannot be gainsaid, meaning you don't have to prove that you're sick or disabled or mentally ill. You have an absolute right to assisted suicide for any reason that you want to be made dead. Wow. That's the ultimate destination of this movement, because that's the logic of it. And that's the debate we should have. Do we really want to destroy suicide prevention? and say suicide is a fundamental right, as fundamental to the right to life because of autonomy, or not. And if it's not, then you can't keep going down this road and pretending it's about terminal illness when it isn't. California is loosened, in fact, has loosened its suicide law, assisted suicide laws. So is Oregon. So are other places. Because the minute the guideline, the law comes into effect, the guidelines that were promised to be protective guidelines 
suddenly are being described as obstacles and barriers to a good death because the mindset changes 180 degrees and then the media pushes and pushes and pushes for an expansion of the law as has happened in California. Well, and I think, too, if anyone understands 20th century history and the dance that Germany did with the so-called science of eugenics, survival of fitness and all of that, to hear that barely 75 years after the close of World War II, here Germany is once again flirting with that notion in its laws related to suicide uh, ought to put everyone back on their heels. And let me just say for the benefit of listeners, and uh, Wesley Smith has just alluded to this, if you think, well, it's just Germany, it's just Belgium, you know, those Europeans, sometimes they can be a little crazy. It's a lot closer to home than that. And we're going to dig down deeper as to where, why, and why this ultimately is such a significant fundamental threat, quite frankly, to the future of humankind. Wesley J. Smith with us today, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. You can get more information on the web at discovery.org. That's discovery.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As we're conducting our conversation today with Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism on the topic of the danger of societal embracing of suicide, assisted suicide as well. I'm just compelled to share with you, posted at 510, uh, 11 minutes ago, that uh, Peter Robbins, a name you won't recognize, but a voice that you will. If you grew up in the 1960s and remember Charlie Brown, Peter Robbins was the voice of Charlie Brown. He apparently had suffered for some while with bipolar disorder, and he has taken his life. You read a story like that, Wes, and we think to ourselves, if only, if only we had paid more attention, if only we had cared more, if only we had been available, if only. And sadly, here are those like George Will that are trying to encourage this, while others are being taken from us simply because society is promoting this notion that if it's too painful, too inconvenient, just go ahead and take your early exit. It's tragic. You know, I think this is a very important connection you're making, and I've written some of this stuff before uh, in, in, in this regard, because the assisted suicide movement is promoting suicide as an answer to suffering. Now, it tries to say, well, we don't want it to be generally, like we're not talking about the troubled teenager, or we're not talking about the veteran with PTSD. But once you start having the state say, yes, some suicides are acceptable, you've become at least to a partial degree pro-suicide. And, and that can leach out. Suicide is known to be a contagious disease, you know, not a technical disease in terms of a virus, but it's contagious. And there are guidelines that the World Health Organization, just as one example, have put in for media to, to try to prevent when there's a notable suicide other suicide, copycat cases of suicide. And yet when it comes to assisted suicide and euthanasia, all of those guidelines and all of those concerns go away, and we pretend that there isn't a nexus, when I believe there's a very strong nexus. Now, the studies haven't been done. One study that I'm aware of is the only study I know that's even been attempted, and it made a weak connection, but I think there's probably a strong connection. But you, you, you can no longer say 
that we are as anti-suicide as we once were. When you take a look at suicide prevention campaigns, they never bring up assisted suicide. I think they don't want to be uh, controversial. Now the only true suicides that we really adamantly seem to oppose are those of, of young people and those of veterans. Uh, others, particularly if you're ill or disabled, people go, well, yeah, I wouldn't want to live like that either. And that sends an insidious message of hopelessness when what people often need is hope and love and saying, no, no, there's a better way. We want you. We love you. We want you with us. Well, and sadly, when you when you try to delineate one type of suicide as good and the other one is bad and somebody is in the throes of a mental breakdown, dealing with, as the case of Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown, um, bipolar disease, or maybe just emotionally overcome by the diagnosis of of a disease that's at least initially being presented by doctors as terminal. Uh, how can we expect, from a practical standpoint, the person in that moment to make the distinction between the good type versus the bad type? I mean, it it, 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 it juxtaposed against the same notion that we've we've seen this uh, promoted, where um, progressives are very much against human trafficking, but they want to decriminalize prostitution, not recognizing the connection between the two. And, and that's, that's part of this problem. Exactly. If somebody is so despairing that they're ready to kill themselves, they're not going to think, oh, my kind of suffering isn't the right kind. That's not how life works. You know, I, I'm reminded of Art Buchwald, um, the, um, the columnist, and, and satirist who um, had been contemplating suicide and uh, was diagnosed with a terminal illness and had actually checked himself into hospice and uh, thought he would uh, would f- finish his days yeah, he, there. He, he, and, went into ho- he went into hospice. He wasn't contemplating suicide, I don't think, but he went into hospice, was told he had weeks to live. And this shows you that a six-month diagnosis or less isn't necessarily so. He went into hospice was told he had weeks to live with kidney failure, and he waited, you know, and he was getting cared for very well in the hospice, and guess what? He didn't die, and he got kicked out of hospice. And he lived long enough to actually write his last book, where he extolled the virtues of life and hospice, and uh, it really sends a lesson that if he had wanted assisted suicide and had, had been in a state where it was legal like California is, he might have killed himself, and never known that he had another book in him. And, you know, I want to take that even closer to home because we talked about the slippery slope that's come to America. The, the Oregon-assisted suicide law, uh, you have to be a resident of the state, 18 years or older, capable of making decisions, and diagnosed with a terminal illness that will lead to death within six months. I recall a number of years ago my mother having been diagnosed with cancer. She was given six months to live. Now, had she chosen to say, well, under that diagnosis, I think I, do, I just don't want to go through that pain and, you know, chemotherapy and all of the ugliness of that. I'm just going to check myself out. And, you know, the doctors were almost right, uh, only off by 13 years. She managed to survive the diagnosis yeah. to 13 years and six months to the month. So what do we do with that? I mean, what, what is the answer that these people promoting assisted suicide give when you when you present before them true facts, and all of a sudden they're saying, well, yeah, but... What, no, what they say is, well, she didn't do it, did she? That's the... Because I've had stories like that, too. That's their, always their response, and the media never picks up on this. The media is driving this death agenda 
for reasons that are, I think, ideological and because that's a sexy story. It's, it's a sexy story to say that somebody committed assisted suicide. Brittany Maynard uh, moved from California to Oregon with brain cancer to commit assisted suicide. That's a sexier story for the media than that young college woman, uh, uh, Hill, who decided to keep playing college basketball and and live with dignity, not die with dignity, by raising money for cancer research. The media is complicit in this, and they are actually, I think, part of the driving force behind it, along with Hollywood, the, the um, movies and television shows that extol assisted suicide as a, as a good. And it's, uh, and, and it's being normalized. People are actually holding suicide parties where people attend uh, to say their goodbyes, and then the person kills himself at the end. Wow. Um, I, I guess the big and difficult question here, Wesley, is for those of us that do value, do appreciate life, do count it as something precious and sacred that should be protected at all costs, how do we respond to all of this? Well, I think we have to, to uh, continue to, to say that suicide isn't the road and to tell people that they are wanted and they are needed, that we will be there for them. So many people who commit assisted suicide, according to the statistics published by Oregon, by the Netherlands, by uh, Canada, it's always the same. People are not killing themselves with assisted suicide or euthanasia being killed with lethal jabs because of pain very rare. Usually it's out of existential anguish, a fear of being a burden, a fear of uh, being unable to engage in enjoyable activities, a fear of losing dignity. These are things that need interventions and need support in terms of telling the person they are valuable, they will be remembered well, they are loved. Uh, but the, the uh, fear-mongering that goes into this thing about, and George Will engaged in it, about hideous deaths and so forth and so on, is really what's driving this agenda. And what's really ironic to me is you'll hear about uh, stories of patients dying in pain because they weren't treated properly, and then supposedly the answer is for those same doctors to be able to write a lethal prescription to correct the problem. It makes no sense. Folks want to get more information. I mentioned earlier that your latest column on this topic, George Will Pushes the Hemlock, is available at discovery.org. Are there other tools available there as well for people that want to get better educated as we try to have a dialogue about this topic when it comes up? Patients' Rights Council, which has a tremendous clearinghouse of information on this entire uh, issue, it's Patients' Rights uh, Council.org, I believe, but it's the Patients' Rights Council. Uh, they have, um, I, I mean, it, I, I'm, an, I'm a consultant for them, and they are, they have a database on this that'll take you anywhere you want to go and teach you anything you want to learn. All right. Well, we appreciate so much, uh, Wes, the insights today. And I want to mention for listeners, maybe this is something that you from time to time have struggled with. Uh, you've had suicidal thoughts. You've been facing challenges, be it physical health, emotional, whatever it might be. Um, there is hope. And if you need to reach out to somebody and talk to someone, there is a private confidential line that you call. It's 800-273-8255. And there will be a voice on the other end that can help talk you through and uh, hopefully prevent you from making a irreversibly wrong decision. 800-273-8255. That's 800 273 
888-382-8255. Our thanks to Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Again, more information on the web at discovery.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation, 535 on your Thursday commute. When I got up yesterday morning in the community where I live here in the Bay Area, it was 38 degrees. Now, to put that in perspective, that's only six degrees above freezing. I don't know about you, but I like my mornings and my days more like 40 degrees above freezing as opposed to just six. But then when you think of it, 38 degrees, wow. Now, if you're homeless, that temperature is unbearable no matter the time of night. It's always cold in the Bay Area, even in the middle of summer when you're homeless in the Bay Area. But when you're homeless in the middle of winter, wow, it can be fatal. It's a challenge, certainly, in a community region like ours with estimates of tens of thousands of folks here that call the streets of the Bay Area home every night because they have no home. Let's find out about what happens to people who are facing homelessness during the cold winter months. Ram Begonia joins us. He is the executive director and CEO of the Bay Area Rescue Mission. And Bram, Happy New Year to you. A bit belated. Happy New Year, Craig. It's great to be with you again, and thank you so much for having me back on. Give us some perspective. Um, There's certainly, as I mentioned, for folks in the Bay Area that are homeless during the winter months, uh, it it can be life-threatening. And sadly, with the economic challenges, and of course all of that exacerbated by COVID in recent years, it's got to make an untenable situation just far, far worse for so many of these families struggling in the Bay Area to try to survive. Well, let's talk about the weather first. It's a two-edged sword. When it's beautiful in the Bay Area and the weather's great, uh, there's not a lot of incentive for some of our uh, unhoused neighbors who are living in encampments to get into a life transforma- uh, transformation program like we have at the Bay Area Rescue Mission where you can uh, get off of drugs and alcohol, focus on your mind, body, and spirit, and really turn your life around. Uh, but uh, when the weather does get cooler and then turns into being cold and to, I, it's unbearable, i got to get out of here, that's actually when the shelters start to fill up. So uh, it, it actually is one of those triggers to have people say, hey, I'm, I can't take it anymore. I need to get into a warm place. And that's why we're so uh, blessed that we have such a great reputation that people turn to the Bay Area Rescue Mission when they uh, just can't take it anymore on the streets. But the COVID situation compounds things. When shelters are full, when the county hotel is full because of people in, in uh, quarantine, and then you can't get in, or you test positive, and then you can't come into a program, or you need to quarantine, just take all the normal issues of uh, being homeless and trying to get into a place, uh, and then compound that with COVID. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. And so we try our best, really, to take care of all the issues. But when, when, when COVID strikes, and there was a huge surge, across the county, across the nation, but particularly in the Bay Area at the beginning of this year, uh, it impacted us as well. And we were underneath health and COVID protocol for uh, for several weeks. And so that, that situation was 
was not good. We have a great staff and a great team who kept people safe and quarantined and got people off of their, uh, you know, five or ten day quarantine, whatever the case may be. And uh, so we've we've been blessed that we we were able to do that. But it's really really difficult when you're on the streets and then you're dealing with COVID on top of all that. And the pressure on a ministry like yours to be there and to help people that are facing. Uh, crisis conditions related to the weather is sort of compounded because historically when we have cold snaps in the Bay Area as we've had over the last few weeks, my goodness, I mean, we we had snow in parts of the Bay Area just barely three weeks ago. And historically, churches will open their doors, National Guard armories will open up and they'll say, hey, come on in. Well, you know, it, it may be only a spot on the floor, but at least you're inside and dry and out of the elements. Well, with COVID, of course, they are not allowed to do any of that. So it, it begs the question, what do these people wind up doing? Do we see a spike in, in fatalities and, and illnesses because of, of weather-related situations? Unfortunately, that is the case. There is an increase in fatalities. Uh, there's an increase in fatalities in shelters, in rescue missions across the country, and, and other programs because of these situations. I mean, I, as you know, Craig, I'm from Hawaii, and we wear slippers out there. And uh, sometimes I will meet some of our friends on the streets wearing nothing, no socks, no shoes, and in this weather. And, uh, you know, we talk about what are the needs. Last time I was on your show, we asked for um, uh, people to donate socks or clean underwear for men and women and children because that's a big need. And it sounds so simple, but it's a need. <laughs> and it, And we see it. And every organization that works with people in encampments and people on the streets of uh, of the Bay Area know that this is a, a real need. It's it's what we put in our in our kits when we give out to when churches make kits for us and we give it out to uh, the community. That's one of the things we put in there: clean socks. And uh, it, it's just really, really a very difficult situation when the weather drops. I, I want to remind our listeners, our great listeners out there, that uh, pre-COVID the Bay Area Rescue Mission was already filled to capacity. Uh, 250 beds for men, women, and children were completely filled already. Mm. And during inclement weather, we put out another 30 cots. Uh, that was pre-COVID. Another 20 cots. This is just on the on the dining room floor. 20 cots for men, another 10 for women. And every single bed pre-COVID, pre-COVID was filled. So now we're in COVID. You can imagine it's just, it's just, compounded on top of that and so having to quarantine find quarantine spaces keep people separated and uh, deal with all of this and living in a congregant setting we have a 24 bed dormitory we have shared bathrooms there's just a lot of extra procedures and precautions of extra cleaning that needs to take place uh, extra rotations delivering of food instead of eating in the cafeteria packing things separately and still serving our community Craig, we still want to feed those who don't even live in our shelter, but those who cannot afford to eat dinner on their own, they come to our doors, and we still give out the sack lunches through our side door. But normally, again, when we're not underneath COVID protocol, we'd invite families, men, women, and children, to come in and eat eat with us um, during those meals. And so now we're, we're still serving. We're still serving the food, but 
Um, it's just these sack lunches. And I appreciate you sharing that, Brand, because I think it's important for all of us to be reminded that the providing of those meals that come to the Bay Area Rescue Mission, folks that come every day, is not just a nice thing to do. It's a kind thing. You know, we think of it in the perspective of, well, a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name. That's all well and good. But under the current circumstances, and all of us that ever go through the aisles of a grocery store know prices have spiked so significantly in a part of the country that's already outrageously expensive to live here. Just try buying a house or or renting an apartment. You know what I'm talking about. Add to that now a person that's struggling to make ends meet. Maybe they're on disability. All they've got is a disability check or a Social Security check. And that is too little money being required to go way too far with the grocery prices literally (laughs) forcing them to try and find some means to supplement a meager little income that's by no means sufficient to survive in the San Francisco Bay Area. Suddenly, those sack lunches and meals that are being provided there at the Bay Area Rescue Mission go well beyond the kind Christian thing to do. They enter into the territory of, if we don't do this, people are at risk of malnutrition and the accompanying potential illness, disease, even the potentiality of death. And I know people hear that and say, Craig, come on. Folks don't die of starvation in America, do they? But it certainly is a reality that has to be addressed and faced, and it's a reality that the Bay Area Rescue Mission faces every day in ministering to growing numbers of people that are finding home are the Bay Area streets. With us today is Bram Bagonia. He is the executive director and CEO of the Bay Area Rescue Mission. We're talking about the challenge of providing love without limits during a time of inclement weather, soaring prices, out-of-control inflation, and all of this hyper-complicated by COVID. And I want to underscore something here before we go to the break, and then we're going to come back to more of our visit with Bram Begonia. But I want to underscore something that, you know, you'll frequently during the holiday season hear us talk about the need to provide meals for families living on the edge, homeless individuals at Christmas and Thanksgiving and so forth. I think we occasionally need to be reminded that homelessness and hunger are not just things that show up at the holidays and then somehow magically disappear when we welcome in the new year. For growing numbers of Bay Area families, in fact, upwards of about 35,000 people, that's something that they live with and suffer through day by day. And so when you're thinking of the homeless population as you maybe drive past the individual that's asking for money at the stoplight or at the freeway off-ramp. You might even see a family, a mother with a couple of kids asking for some help. Be mindful that their needs are indeed 12 months of the year, and prayerfully consider what you can do to help support this ministry and the life-saving work that they do. And you can, of course, give your tax-deductible gift online by going to bayarearescue.org. That's bayarearescue.org. And if you've given in the past, I say God bless you and encourage you to be mindful that the need continues even as we speak. Bayarearescue.org for your tax-deductible gift today. Bram Begonia with us, CEO, Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, what of this notion of 
unhoused neighbors, as Bram just referred to. What exactly does that mean? We'll talk about that as our conversation continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with Bram Begonia, the CEO and Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission. Information available online at bayarearescue.org. Now, when we think of homelessness, you probably have a, an image in your mind, you know, kind of the, the bum with the knapsack riding the rails kind of a thing, right? Or maybe more modern image of an individual that perhaps is struggling with mental illness, more than likely dealing with some sort of an addiction that has led them to lose a job and therefore suddenly be out on the streets. And so that's that's kind of the, the, the overall image, I think, that most of us traditionally have had when we talk about homelessness. But, Bram, you mentioned something before the break that caught my attention. You talked about ministering to unhoused neighbors— which suggests to me that the picture of what homelessness is like today on the streets of the San Francisco Bay Area is maybe a lot different than sort of those tried, tired, worn out, uh, you know, uh, um, almost stereotypical images. Yeah, that's the notion that a lot of people, and, and it's true, when you see, when you're driving on the freeways and you're looking under underpasses, those are definitely our unhoused neighbors who are struggling but if you're if you're uh, two families uh that that normally live in a house together because of the prices of the bay area and you have another two families living with you because mom or dad from one family lost a job and the other family you know has some significant situation there actually are in-house neighbors as well if you're couch uh, if you're couch surfing you're considered unhoused and there's many other categories and there's an official point in time count that the county does every year and the next one is in February and that count uh, will show that uh, nine nine well nine we for are for sure nine thousand individuals have received uh, assistance meaning they have said they're unhoused and, and have received assistance but that's only people that want to be counted there are several people who are not counted just like in the normal census that's taken uh, every 10 years with the U.S. government. There's many, many people are counted and complete their surveys, and many don't. And so, I mean, to give you an idea of, of, of the, what happens in a crisis or when a COVID wave comes, comes through, when I was last with you, we mentioned that the Bay Area Rescue Mission normally gives out, provides about 55,000 meals pre-COVID. And uh, when COVID hit, it doubled. We're we're doing about 110,000 uh, meals provided wow. per month. Last month in December, in the month of December, Craig, we served, uh, we provided 173,000 meals. We know how much food we collect uh, because <laughs> we pick it up. Our partners drop it off and we weigh it, and we we provided 173,000 meals last month. That's triple our normal pre-COVID amount. It, to us, it's it's staggering. And again, those are those unhoused neighbors we're talking about. That uh, there's there's people are just lining up and needing the assistance 
and we serve as many people as we can. And to put this in perspective for listeners, Bram, when you talk about 173,000 meals, I mean, we're, we're talking about roughly two and a half times the population of the average Bay Area community. I mean, aside from the biggies, San Jose, Santa Clara, San Francisco, most towns and communities up and down the 101 and the 880 are on average about 75,000 inhabitants. So you're talking about, you know, well over nearly two and a half times that just served in one month. And I want to put this in perspective for listeners. When I ask the question about unhoused neighbors, part of the point here, too, is that these are folks that maybe next year or last year, rather, and now this year have gone from being your neighbor, working, contributing, maybe you didn't even know they existed, and now all of a sudden somebody lost a job because of COVID. Maybe they got sick. Maybe one of the bread earners in the family got sick and is no longer able to work or worse still got sick and passed away. And so suddenly now they are struggling financially. The Bay Area is home and they can't make ends meet. And these are people that are not right. just, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the bum on the rails, you know, stereotypical image. These are folks that have been neighbors, maybe folks that we once worked with or went to church with. Who knows? Suddenly they find themselves in desperate, in desperate circumstances. That's right. Because we're talking about when there's a chronic homeless person, they've been giving all the resources in the world. Uh, we're going out, doing outreach and meeting with people and not just us, many other organizations, but they choose to be there. What we're talking about, you and I are talking about, are when people are living, working hard, hard-working people who have jobs, who are living paycheck to paycheck, in September 2021, uh, the, the additional hours given uh, to cover COVID sick time was ended. It ended. So if you get sick from COVID and you're, you're working an hourly job, and you've used up your sick time because you've, you can't come into work because your, your job won't let you come into work because if you can't come to work when you have cold symptoms or flu-like symptoms, but you're out of sick time because you have to quarantine for five to ten days, which is the CDC mandate, and you use up all your sick time, now the only other resource for you is to not get paid for those hours. And when you're living, living to pay, paycheck to paycheck, you know how much uh, uh, the price of bacon has gone up. To some people, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to pay more for gas, so I'm going to have to pay more for uh, bacon and groceries. For some people, that more means I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm going to have to line up for food at the Bay Area Rescue Mission, get some assistance so I can save that money. But when you're talking about rent money and really other kinds of money, the, the money that's needed when you've got, you've got to go to the hospital or you don't have medical, that money that has not been saved up, there's no emergency fund, there's no safe safety net, uh, that's when people find out that they are going to be homeless. They're going to be living in their car. And, again, on COVID, when you're living with family and friends, it's, it's fine and everyone pitches together. Now when somebody gets sick or now people are scared to get sick from their friends and family that they're helping, they say, look, we love you. But we just can't do this. We just can't do this. We're trying to keep our own family safe. And, and, and that's and, the reality of day-to-day situation right now. And this really helps to underscore not only the tremendous need, but the Herculean job that's being done by a ministry like the Bay Area Rescue Mission, where, my goodness, as I say, they're, they have exponentially increased 
um, what they're doing in terms of providing meals and other services to needy and hurting families and individuals. And toward that end, uh, Bram, uh, I, I would be amiss if I didn't ask you the most important question, and that is for all of us wondering, wow, something needs to be done. What can we be doing from a practical standpoint to help support the work and ministry of the Bay Area Rescue Mission? Yeah, if it weren't during COVID, I'd say three things, time, talent, and treasure. We need it all. <laughs> come on down. Well, you can't come down because we can't have volunteers down there right now. The best thing you can do, and we have some people who do some great things like buy us masks, and we were receiving thousands of pairs of uh, uh, N95 masks and so forth. But really a more practical thing is to, we just sent out a letter to our donors who, who love and support us and said, look, we've been hit just uh, very hard by COVID. And if you can spare writing a check for $50 or getting online and doing an additional donation on top of their normal monthly giving to us of $50 by going to org, we'd be very grateful because these burdens uh, are a blessing to us. When, when there's more to serve, it's an opportunity for us to serve more people, and that means we can have a, another opportunity to not only meet the basic needs of our people and, and family and friends in our neighborhood that are hurting, but also to give them an opportunity to join our lifelong program so we can break that cycle of homelessness, break that cycle of poverty. And so that extra little bit of assistance will help us for all the extra things that happen during COVID, setting up the separate rooms, the extra PPE that we buy, the extra cleaning that we do, the janitorial services. I mean, these things add up very quickly, and we're talking about serving uh, hundreds of people in the course of a month. And so uh, we're just so blessed by all the support. And, and those lead gifts, last time somebody gave a great gift when we were on the radio, Craig, uh, that, that lead gift was amazing. It really was amazing, and it really helped us. But it really was a lead gift, and, and that encourages others to give. And the $50, the $25, the $10, they really add up, and it means a lot to a ministry like ours. Again, we don't receive any government funding, so it's just by the support of our amazing community that we're able to do what we do. And I love, and I hope listeners really hear your heart and passion that you see this situation right now um, is an opportunity to do more to serve, that it's not a burden, but rather a blessing. It's an opportunity that we are being given as the church to be a blessing to others. And while right now, under the circumstances, uh, giving of time and talent may be on hold for the moment, uh, treasure is something we can all share. Listen, at the end of the day, it all belongs to God anyway, right? So I just want to encourage you right now, if you take a moment and uh, Go to bayarearescue.org and give a little something extra. If you gave last month, God bless you. The need is even bigger this month, and it's a simple thing to do. Just go to bayarearescue.org. An extra 50 bucks will go so far in helping them address this current blessing opportunity that we have been given. And uh, we appreciate so much the work and ministry of the Bay Area Rescue Mission. Um, They are not only uh, changing lives, but really demonstrating what love without limits looks like. So let's you and I express some of that, too. Our thanks to Bram Begonia, CEO, Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission. Again, your $50 can make a big difference today. Go to bayarearescue.org. That's bayarearescue.org. A conversation with Rabbi Charlie Cohen coming up around the corner. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.